For those who want to be a part of his kingdom, Jesus is saying that they must first recognize their inability to be complete before God. And that leads us into mourning. Those who recognize their own sufficiency will also recognize the way that they have tried to make up for it on their own. To come to God, we need to be poor in spirit. To come to God, we also need to repent, to mourn over our self-sufficiency. And this mourning refers to a sorrow over sin, an essential part of the repentance that leads to salvation. So then after that, we get to gentleness, or the other word for that often in your translations used is meekness. And meekness carries this attitude of humility. In Numbers 12, we can see there, it says there, that Moses was called the meekest man in all the earth. Why was he called the meekest man? Because he had strength and abilities given to him by God that unparalleled anyone of his time. But he never used those gifts for himself. It was always for God's glory. Except for that one time where instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it twice. And the consequences were great for acting in his own spirit instead of being humble. The humility of meekness allows us to see our own unworthiness and God's absolute worth. So we've walked through these verses. We see this poorness of spirit, this recognition of our insufficiency leads us to mourn over our attempts of self-sufficiency, which will lead us to gain a perspective that is humble, and that will lead us to, to desire to live according to God's standards. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does that mean? How do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? How will that satisfy us? Why is righteousness a quality of the kingdom of heaven? And what is righteousness? There's a few different places that talk about righteousness. I should say more than a few. A few interesting ones I found. Lot was considered a righteous man. You can see that. In Genesis 18, in 2 Peter 2, he was called a righteous man, which we tend to not think that of him, but that's what Scripture says. Saul recognized David's righteousness when he didn't take the opportunity to kill him. Job, you will remember he was the general in David's army, and he put to death Two righteous men. That's what the scripture says. They were two righteous men. They were undeserving of death. And for that, he was killed. The book of Psalms is a beautiful description declaring God as the standard of righteousness. He's, God is called a righteous judge, or O righteous God, or Yahweh is righteous. The book of Psalms also declares God as the vindicator and the upholder of the righteous. Romans 3 gives a very strong and clear description of people and the society that rejects God, and they're considered unrighteous. 
But in contrast to Romans 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look more at this later, gives us a beautiful description of the believer. Through Jesus, we who believe have become the righteousness of God. So again, what is righteousness? The first time we come across this word, just a little aside, if you want to learn anything when you are studying the word of God, uh, the, uh, as I like to call it, or as a lot of other people have called it, the rule of first mention is always very interesting and always very important. Look at the first time the word is used and build your way off from there. Uh, Robert has been doing evening studies, and he's often been doing this. The first time the word righteous or righteousness is used, who knows where that is? Who was the first person in Scripture mentioned as righteous? Any kids want a brave answer? Adults? Yes. That is right. Yep, so we sin, but when we repent, we turn to God, and that makes us righteous. So the first time the word righteous or righteousness is used in Scripture, actually, is to talk about Noah. And it says this in Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. The Hebrew word used for righteous appears 196 times in the Old Testament, and that is just the adjective uh, form. That's the describing part. If you talk about being righteous or like a righteous judgment or justice or vindicate, those are all forms of that word righteous, you'll count close to 500 times just in the Old Testament. And that original Hebrew word used here means to be just or lawful. So to be lawful is to hold to a command. A law-abiding citizen is generally a term used to speak well of someone. And a lawbreaker is someone who disregards or fails to keep the law. Generally speaking, we want to be considered as law-abiding rather than law-breaking. A law-abiding citizen is above reproach. He's blameless. No one can negatively point a finger at him. And such a citizen is free to be in communion with others because they benefit society, not harm it. You think of it, lawbreakers tend to be put in prison or punished, and law keepers uh, are free to be around. And, and that is even described with Noah. Noah, it says, has the freedom to walk with God because he was righteous. However, as Christians, we know that righteousness is more than just keeping the law. More than being lawful or law-abiding, the word righteousness carries this idea of being moral. And there's a moral component to this. So something just or lawful also needs to be right. In other words, righteousness is more than lawfulness or legality. So, a little interesting thing. There are some very strange laws in the world if you look around them. In the state of Indiana, it is illegal to kiss someone if you have a mustache. That's an actual law. 
In Canada, under the 1985 Currency Act, it is illegal to pay more than $5 worth of merchandise with nickels. And it's illegal to pay $10 worth of merchandise with dimes. And you can go from there. Another interesting Canadian law, uh, on Canadian radio, you have to play 35% of Canadian artists. And if you don't do that, you can receive a very hefty fine. So if you're wondering why there's so much Canadian artists being played and you like more international, that is why. You have to have 35%. So strange laws. Are they righteous? I don't want to get into an argument about those ones. But more seriously, there are some laws that have been out there for a while that are not good. In 1619, the first slaves were sold in the U.S. And a few years later, a law was passed that banned interracial marriage. And one state held on to this law for centuries. It was repealed in 2000. Was that a righteous law? It was a law. It was legal. In fact, you could, got, you could get punished for that. The U.S. Civil War was fought in part over the right for one man to own another. And today, there are more slaves in the world than ever before, and there are many laws protecting those who have slaves. Just because it's legal, does that make it righteous? For decades, it was the law in China that a couple could not have more than one child. It was illegal to have more. So if a couple follows that law, are they being righteous? Was it unrighteous to have more than one child? Canada is one of three countries in the world where there are no restrictions on abortion from the moment of conception until the moment of birth. This absence of law, is that righteous? One of three countries. Every other country in the world has some form of protection for the unborn life in the womb. Canada is one of three that has none. There are a few ways we can use righteousness to describe someone or something. We can talk about one's character being righteous. A righteous person is more than one who's law-abiding. They hold to God's law. We're going to explore that more in a moment. You could be considered righteous in your cause. Many of us know the news this week. Um, there are many for many decades who have participated and prayed and hoped for the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And that happened this week. They were part of a righteous cause. That's what that was. We praise the Lord for the many people who hungered and thirsted for righteousness and never gave up. We can be righteous in our standing before God. So why is this so important to us as God's people? We need to go back to the Old Testament and look at some history there. So in the history of Israel, God began his covenant to the Israelites through Moses while at Mount Sinai. And this is the covenant. In Exodus 19, we read these words. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You will be my treasured people, my treasured possession out of all the nations. For the whole earth is mine, and unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is saying here, if you follow my commands, I will be your father. You will be my people. I will take care of you, and I will bring you to the promised land. However, as you know, the history of Israel, they refused and they rebelled against the Lord ten times. That final refusal is they refused to go into the land. The spies came back and gave a good report of the land. And Joshua and Caleb were firm. They said, we can take this. The Lord is with us. And everyone, the, the whole crowd, uh, there was an uproar. There was a rebellion. They said, we're going back to Egypt. And God punished them by making them wait for another 40 years until the faithless generation had died off. The book of Numbers records this rejection and this waiting. The book of Deuteronomy picks up at the end of that 40 years. The old generation has died off. The new generation is ready to follow the Lord. So Moses, in teaching the people of the covenant God made with the previous generation, gives a history lesson to the current generation of why the previous didn't make it. And so Deuteronomy begins with the recounting, the remembering of that old covenant. Deuteronomy 4, verses 4 to 6 says this, You who held fast to the Lord, your God, are all alive today. See this, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of them. Keep them and do them. That you will be, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear of all these statutes or these laws, they will say, Surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. A few verses later, in uh, speaking of the previous generation, Moses says this, And you, came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Really simply put, we tend to, at least I did, I tend to think of Exodus and Leviticus as Moses going up, into the mountain, hearing from God and bringing that back to the people. That is true for most of it, but not for Exodus 20. And it's affirming that here. God spoke the Ten Commandments to the people directly. And because if you look at the end of Exodus 20, the people are so afraid of God, they tell Moses, you go up there, you hear what the Lord has to say, and we will listen to you. The Ten Commandments were spoken to the people And so he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Notice there in Deuteronomy, what does Moses call the Ten Commandments? He calls them God's covenant. And just like the Ten Commandments are the two tablets of stone of the covenant, scholars have noted that the whole book of Deuteronomy reads like a covenant. The very form and pattern of the book resembles the form and the pattern of ancient treaties. 
How do we sum this up? God's chosen people were to live and act in a certain way. Why? Because God's way leads to not just surviving, but to thriving. And his way leads for the world to recognize who he is. And so Moses saying that, he reminds them of God's words, but he also says this. And this is the key. Deuteronomy 4, verses 7 to 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And whenever we can call upon him, we can. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In these verses, God is declaring, and Moses is declaring, that his rules are righteous. His rules are the standard for righteousness. His design is what is right. So if we want to know what the standards of what is good and what is right, we need to look at God's law. And what follows then in Deuteronomy? It starts with repeating the Ten Commandments. You can find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. And after that, it gives standards by the way a prophet should speak. And a king should lead, and a judge should rule. It speaks of a righteous way to go to war, a righteous way to build your house, a way to plant your crops, how to dress, how to take care of your neighbor's property, how to rule in an accidental death or injury. There's a whole section on righteous worship, and righteous divorce, and righteous sexuality, and righteous tithing. The The book of Deuteronomy is a whole way to live righteously. Deuteronomy is the standard of righteousness to the people of Israel. And for us, it is no different. As God's chosen people, that is also who we are. Not so much the rules there, but this standard of righteousness that we are called to live to. It says in 2 Peter 2, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, and now we have. So we too are God's people. We too are expected to live righteously. Jesus, in taking, in talking, sorry, of the kingdom of heaven, describes this beatitude of how his kingdom is one of righteousness. His kingdom is made up of people who love God's design, who want to represent God's presence here on earth. Just like the Israelites were called to live righteously, as a way to represent God, we as Christians have been called to uphold righteousness as a way to represent God's kingdom here on earth. The end of the Beatitude, Matthew 5, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. They will be filled. Jesus is inviting his people to stand for righteousness, but he says that they will be blessed by it. They will be filled by that. 
How does righteousness satisfy us? This is the question that the woman at the well didn't initially understand. In John 4, the answer that Jesus gives is this. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. For everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We were not created to live evilly or sinfully. That is not how we are meant to be. Our design when we were created by God was to live righteously. Just like running a diesel engine on gas or using a snowmobile in the desert or trying scuba diving equipment in space, it does not work. Those go against design. And we have been designed to live righteously. Sin will never satisfy us. And as we reject our self-sufficiency, as we mourn over our past, as we come to God in humility, and as we desire the righteousness of Christ, we will find ourselves to be filled, to be satisfied. Jesus here speaks about righteousness in a general sense. He doesn't say, Blessed are you who seek your own personal righteousness. Or blessed are you who seek, who seek societal righteousness. He just talks about righteousness. The whole thing. So we can safely assume that this means we are to hunger and thirst for all that is righteous. And this idea of being selective in our righteousness is confirmed in scripture. For example, if we keep the whole law and stumble yet in one point, we're still guilty. We have still fallen short. So how do we pursue, how do we seek after righteousness? So my parents, uh, every time they come to visit us, they uh, like to bring meat along from the farm. I was born on a pig farm and raised on it, and I consider that a privilege. And every time they bring us food, or bring us meat, I should say, uh, they're doing that not because we ask them, but they're doing that because they want to bless us. If I try to pay for that meat, if I tried to barter for it, how would that come across? That would be insulting. My dad is giving me meat. My, my parents are giving me meat, and I, I say, hey, I'll trade you for that. Or, hey, next time you come, I'll have this for you guys. I'll have some chicken for you instead. I don't need to ask for it. I don't need to earn it. They just want to bless us with that. But how could I show my appreciation for that meat? By never taking for granted the fact that they regularly give it to us. By making sure that when I'm in the grocery store, I buy maple leaf product and not Schneider product, because that's where my folks send their meat to. By heralding the good news that bacon is great quality meat and everyone should buy more. I could go to the anti-pork rallies and hold up my pro-pork signs. And I could also support them by never eating chicken or beef or sushi again. Actually, that would be really sad. I love all those other things too. But that is how I would show that appreciation. 
And it's the same for us with righteousness. God has poured out his favor upon us, his children. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. We didn't earn that righteousness. We never will. And when we try to be good, as in when we try to do right to make God happy with us, that's an insult to the grace of God. He already, because of the work of Christ, sees us as righteous. We can't earn it. So don't keep trying. Instead, our calling, our reasonable service, our proper response to his good favor toward us is to sell our lives for the sake of his kingdom. It's to give of our all to see his kingdom thrive. We don't try to work on our righteousness. We try to see his righteousness displayed here in our world. So, for example, I have, a, I have a number of things listed here. You can find these all throughout Scripture. The kingdom of God is about generosity. So we live generously, and we commit against hoarding and unrighteous gain. His kingdom is about unity. So we pray to that end, and we dismantle the sinful patterns in our own lives that destroy unity. His kingdom is about life. So we stand for life and we stand against anything that promotes death. His kingdom is about thriving relationships. So we protect our relationships and we stand against anything that might cause a breakdown in our marriages, in our friendships, and all of our other relationships. His kingdom is about truth. So we stand for what is true. His kingdom is about justice. So we stand for the values that lead to justice and we stand against any kind of injustice or discrimination. His kingdom is about hospitality. Christ has been preparing a, a meal for us for the last 2,000 years, a meal that we will be with him forever in heaven. And if that's what his kingdom is about, we do the same. We invite people into our lives to eat at our tables and live under our roofs, especially those who are in need and without a home. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do here with uh, those who are coming here from Ukraine. They need a place. We're being hospitable. That is seeking righteousness. His kingdom is about love. So we love one another and we denounce hatred and selfishness. His kingdom is not of this world. So we should expect that anything the world stands for is probably not something that God's kingdom is about. We need to be comfortable aligning with his kingdom regardless of the cost. God's word reveals to us the standard, not so that we can earn it, but so that we can uphold it. God doesn't tell us what righteousness is so that we can become worthy of his grace. God tells us what righteousness is so that we can re represent it to a world that is broken and dying. So what is righteousness? God's standard of living for his kingdom. Why should we be righteous? Because we are God's people bought at a price, and this is our reasonable service. How do we seek righteousness? By upholding it in our own lives. When do we do this? Notice that Jesus didn't say, Blessed are those who are righteous, for they shall be filled. 
we already are because of the work of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For his sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is not talking about our identity as righteous before God. Notice also that Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who long for righteousness, or blessed are those who seek righteousness. Why didn't Jesus just say that? He said, those who hunger and thirst. Jesus is using a metaphor here to say something important. And thirst. Every day. We don't just long for food. We don't just seek for food. We seek it regularly, daily, more than daily, morning, noon, and evening. I know some people that get up at night to eat and drink. Food is such a need for us that a short while without it, we become faint. Some of us become hangry. Why do we need to keep eating? Because we get hungry. I don't need to eat once a year to keep me going or once a week. I need to eat multiple times a day. I hunger and thirst every day. What was the question I started off this morning? What is the most important day of my marriage? Is it July 15th? Is it February 14th? It's every day. Every day is the most important day of my marriage. If I make a big deal of July 15th, which is in about uh, two, two and a half weeks, if I make a big deal about that and three days later pretend like it didn't happen or just ignore it altogether and make no effort after that, even months after, to show how much I love my wife, what good is that one-day specialty? I'm not saying don't do the special things on the anniversaries. I'm not saying that. There's an old adage. It goes like this. I told you once that I loved you, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. How many of you have heard that? It sounds great, but it really isn't that good. Every day is what is important. Not just July 15th, not just February 14th, not just the three-year anniversary. Every day is important. Every day is an opportunity for me to experience communion with my wife. When I only focus on the milestones, I will end up devaluing the others. Every day is a beautiful day for me to experience that communion. Every day, my wife is a gift to me to help me and fulfill me every day, not just July 15th. And every day, I am God's gift to her, to lead her and to fulfill her every day. And shame on me if I don't. Every single day. Jesus is saying to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And if you know that eating and drinking is a regular part of our life, and you know that when you eat, you can satisfy that need, then to be spiritually satisfied, we must seek it in the same way. We must seek after righteousness all day, every day. We must seek it the same way that we look for food. If you came here if you, uh, and looked at the bulletin or if you looked at the, uh, the brief this week, you'll probably have noticed the title said, Hungry on Thursday. 
that actually started as a missed typo on my phone when I was texting with Robert. I said, I asked him, I said, so am I doing hungry and Thursday for righteousness? And that's not what it was meant to say. But as I thought about that, and he, he called me out on it and made fun of me. But as I thought about it, I actually realized that that was the phrase that spoke of our natural tendency to intermittently speak, uh, seek after God. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness every day, multiple times, or, or just when we walk in here on Sunday mornings? What is more important, what we do here right now, or what you're going to do tomorrow afternoon at 3, or Thursday afternoon at evening at 7? This is important. Don't get, that wrong. Don't get me wrong. This is very important, what we're doing right now. But so is Thursday night at 9 p.m. We are to seek first his kingdom anytime, all the time. Right now is important, but so is Thursday. Those who uphold righteousness are a part of the kingdom of God. And those who uphold righteousness will be blessed and they will be satisfied. The benediction for this comes from Psalm 63, where David says these words. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, because I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. Let's pray. Lord, you are telling us that we are blessed when we seek after you, when we seek after that which is righteous. Lord, help us to know your word so that we do that. Lord, we want to be faithful representatives of your kingdom. And we want your kingdom to grow, to be far and wide on this earth, that you may receive all the glory that you are due. We pray for these things, and we pray that we may be a part of that and show us the areas in our life where our pride, where our sinfulness, where our, our mistakes are getting in the way of seeking you and you first. Lord, help us. Move in our hearts. Convict us of the areas that we need to change. And thank you, Lord, for the mercy that you've given us, the grace where you have already presented us as righteous before the Father. May that, Lord, be the, the motivation, the fact that we are already accepted. We are already accepted before you, and we simply need to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.